You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, dear listeners, this week on the Renegade Economist, we have Fred Harrison, taken from his Geophilus YouTube channel, a recent clip he's put up. Now, Fred, of course, is the author of Rent Unmasked and a number of other books, including As Evil Does, The Traumatized Society, Boom Bust 2010 and more. So uh, it's all about this battle for survival on planet Earth. And we all want to be wealthy, most of us anyway, but so few understand the rules of economic engagement. When you hear Fred talk about rent or ground rent, think of the naturally increasing value of location, location. As Adam Smith said, that's the natural source of government funding. Unfortunately, that has been etched away from our democratic functions and now we're living in a world where it's seen as perfectly acceptable in Australia to take out a 40 or 50 year mortgage. Tell your MP about that. Get someone on in Parliament trying to talk about 40-year mortgages. It's outrageous it's gone ahead. After uh, this 13-minute clip, I'll be back with some more riveting tax loophole news. What remains a mystery still to this day is the absence of a consensus among historians and archaeologists about what causes the decline and eventual extinction of so many civilizations. But it's not really a mystery. When you do a comparative analysis of the ancient and classical and even some modern civilizations, you arrive at a general conclusion. The common theme is this. The rents, the sacred rents which were originally invested to create those civilizations in the first place, to fund the infrastructure that made them possible, at some point, some people start to privatize those rents. And those rents start to get diverted to personal use for the self-aggrandizement of a few individuals instead of being invested for the common good. When that happens, the energy starts to ebb away from the civilization the vitality, the creativity that any expanding urban civilization needs is dissipated and the governments have to start taxing people which then suppresses the productive capacity of the population. You put those two things together, the privatization of the sacred rents and taxing people's labors and you have a recipe for catastrophe. It's that which is the common theme that leads to the eventual collapse of civilization. Civilization became possible because people voluntarily agreed to pool the net income, the sacred income, the sacred rents for the common good. In doing so, they created two kinds of new power, new in the history of the human species. The first kind of power was the hard power, made possible by investing resources in the waterways that made the cities like Babylon possible in the Near East, in their arid zones. The amphitheaters for which classical Greece is famous, 
the highways of ancient Rome. In addition, though, there was the soft power. The sacred income made it possible to enhance the spiritual experience, to build the temples where people could gather, to provide the time for people like Socrates to philosophize, for people to devote time, investing time, not to producing the food they needed for their daily bread, but to experiment in what became science. This soft power, when merged with the hard power, created sustainable civilization. Civilization flourished for so long as the sacred revenue, the sacred rents, was pooled for the common good. But once those sacred rents began to be privatized, that became the beginning of the end of civilization. Scaffolding is used to support the columns of ancient temples like this a sacred monument to one of the Greek gods. But isn't our civilization also being held up by scaffolding? We call it quantitative easing. That's the reckless, desperate expansion of the money supply, pouring money into the economy, trying to keep it afloat keeping afloat an economy that is unsustainable. At a conference on the Greek island of Rhodes, I explained how tax reform could renew our globalized civilization. What we're looking for is organic growth out of the present realities to something that ends up being a new paradigm, a new model. We're hearing a lot from even the highest uh, international financial institutions now that the existing system simply doesn't work. And what they're saying is they don't know what to do next. When the next crisis hits, all they can do is keep going with the existing arrangements which they know, which they've confessed, does not work. So how do we organically shift from the current paralysis to what would, in the end, be a new model, a new paradigm, a new social system that actually solves our problems comprehensively. What I'm suggesting is that if we alter the financial system by rebalancing the way the government funds its obligations, by progressively reducing the taxes on wages and raising the revenue in a neutral way so there's no cut in, in income, no reduction in public spending, no austerity in other words, rebalancing the public uh, revenue system, shifting onto the rents of land. Why? Why the rents of land? In the United Kingdom, the taxes that we employ impose what the economist calls excess burdens. What does that mean? It, the, the more attractive, more precise phrase is deadweight losses. In Britain today, if we raised all the revenue via the government, collecting it from an annual ground rent, that was uh, Adam Smith's concept, an annual ground rent. If we raised it in that way, rather than taxing people's wages, 
taxing entrepreneurial profits and all the other taxes which burden the economy, the British economy would be larger today by something like 500 billion pounds. Across Europe, the VAT has a similar effect of suppressing economic activity. If, if the European Union eliminated the VAT and raised the revenue instead with an annual ground rent charge, the, the European economy would be larger by about one trillion euros. The government doesn't have to do anything to generate that extra revenue of wealth and welfare, just rebalance the way it raises its revenue, reduce the burden on, the, on people who go to work, and draw the revenue from the one source that could, uh, inflicts no distortions on the economy. That is one of the bedrock principles in classical economics, which everybody, all the way up to Stiglitz today, confirm would not distort the economy. The consequence of that would be heading towards the new paradigm. In this first slide, I'm suggesting that by the government interfering in no way other than shifting the structure of its revenue, wonderful things would begin to happen. First of all, governance itself would be accountable to the people. We blame the market, but the rules are set by government, so we have state-sponsored unemployment. We need to put the blame where it actually belongs. If anybody's exploiting the present system, they're doing it, Yes, they may be greedy, sharks and whatever, but the laws allow them to do it, right? And we, if we are a democracy, are under an obligation to change the rules. The capital markets, they are distorted as well. People don't invest their capital to generate the best results for the consumers. They look at what is a tax-efficient investment. This is not market failure. They, people are acting rationally when they say we will invest on the basis of tax-efficient decisions. We want to maximize our profits. You can't blame entrepreneurs for saying that if the rules of the game allow them to do it. But it's our responsibility to, to, responsibility to change the rules of the game. And we can. The economics and the ethics of this are perfect. They deliver harmony in the uh, uh, economy, in the relationship between people, in their civic uh, lives, in their economic activities and in their political activities. But what happens very quickly with confronting uh, governments today with the need for this kind of change? Unfortunately, this is where we hit what is actually the biggest problem. And we need to recognize that it's the biggest problem if we're actually going to progress this idea. And I'll give you three historical examples very quickly. Louis XVI in France in the 18th century. And unfortunately, the peasants were getting restless. The people in the town were getting restless. Turgot, who was the finance minister, went to the king and said, look, what we must do is change the tax regime. We must rebalance it. We shouldn't penalize people who are working, raise the revenue from the rent of land. No, said Louis. Louis and his queen had a meeting with Madame Guillotine, end of the Ancien Regime. Second example, late 19th century, Russia. The peasants were getting restless. 
so were the people in the towns. A man called Leo Tolstoy, who owned a large estate, who was close to the peasants, he recognized that there was a problem emerging within Russia. So he submitted long documentation to the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, and said, look, what we need to do in Russia in order to progress our society is change the tax system, raise more revenue from the rent of land, reduce the burden on the peasants. No, said Nick, uh, Nicholas II. He and his family ended up in a basement and Lenin's revolutionaries with their pistols shot them. Third example, China. The emperor at the beginning of the 20th century was a young man who was well educated Around China at the time was a man called Sun Yat-sen who was going around saying what we need to do because we have to change the system in China. What we need is, and he called it the three principles of the people. And one of the principles was we must rebalance the revenue system. We must raise revenue from land and get the burden on the peasants down. Nope. In 1911, the last of the Qing dynasty was out and the Republic was born. So there you have examples where people in power can be told what is good for their society that would rescue them, prevent them from having their uh, necks severed from their uh, heads from their bodies, but they couldn't do it. Time and again, the decision makers would not make the change that was rational. So when we think about the uh, European uh, economy today, or what's going on in Washington, don't imagine that because this is a rational, correct way to evolve organically into a new paradigm, that it will actually happen. Because there are great resistances, because the power ultimately in our society is with those who control the rent. And somehow we have to find a way to make it possible for it in a democracy for the people to reclaim the right to determine how their revenue is raised. There's the cicadas chime away in the background. That was Fred Harrison discussing how we get the public a share in the rising value of the earth, the ground rent, the locational value of living in a community. Unfortunately, that's been privatised to insiders, to those willing to take on a 30, 40 or 50 year mortgage. For many, they don't have that 50 or 60, $70,000 deposit needed to enter the housing market. So it's quite a concern that uh, more and more uh, loopholes are being opened up for property investors in this era of record low interest rates. I'd just love to know how many nations have property prices above their 2008 peaks. I would suspect over a third of the uh, 190, 200 nations on this planet would be suffering from property bubbles again. It's still seen as untouchable. Well, I wrote to uh, a young student today answering a question saying, look, it may well take less time to learn about a, a fairer form of land value taxation. It may well take less time to lobby for this and get the tax laws overturned than what it will take to pay off your mortgage. Don't you think that's true? We've pushed the uh, mantle up on negative gearing, capital gains tax reform. Unfortunately, though, the pressures keep building. Uh, the Machiavellian doublespeak continues. 
And while state governments are talking about the need for land value capture in some fronts, in others they're increasing the land tax threshold. Just devastating to see in Queensland it's virtually written off land tax as an affordability tool. They increase the land tax threshold, meaning first-time investors don't have to pay it until the property they've they've invested in is worth more than $600,000. Tragic. The two-tiered society continues. So what about global property prices? I was looking at France. It's it's been down now uh, for 13 quarters in a row, down another 2.5%. Latvia has been has flatlined since its incredible crash in 2008. The UK, though, up 5.3%, and uh, just an indication of how tax policy does change behaviour. In the first quarter of 2016, the year-on-year increase for outer London was 11.2%. Whose wages increased that much in a year? That was all due to investors flooding the market before a 3% increase in stamp duty is slapped onto those owning their second home. And of course, the UK has no restriction on foreign investors. So with their poorly aimed tax system in the UK, as Harrison just hinted at, it really is quite some free-for-all for those in the know. Now... I'm recording this from Tumbling Waters in the Northern Territory and we're just over halfway on our All the Good Things Tour of Australia. My uh, beloved wife Raina and uh, six-year-old twins Curtis and Jamari and nine-year-old Tara. So we're pretty well tuned at uh, packing and moving, driving some 400 kilometres a day. But I thought I'd go through some of the snippets I've picked up of passing through some of these communities. So we drove to Eden and then up through Marimbula, just struck by the beauty of nature. Pambula, incredible beachside living there, but was uh, struck by the storm damage of coastal erosion. That big storm that went through New South Wales in about late May, early June this year affected uh, so much of the landscape from uh, Pambula all the way up to north of Sydney, up to Byron Bay there were problems and concerns with the rising king tides that are occurring and if a storm is due at that particular time then watch out. So property values, will they start falling on those coastal edges? That's something that we've been looking at uh, for two or three years since Donna Lorenz raised the issue here on the Renegade Economist. Up into Sydney, I couldn't believe how narrow the roads were crossing uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, It was all about premium land use and the big thing that hit me there was that they have six monthly leases now in Sydney. Wouldn't that keep you on tenderhooks? All the advantages on the investor's side and of course they're looking at how quickly prices are rising, how quickly rents are following and from that uh, being able to jack up the rents every six months and if you don't agree to it, you're kicked out and in comes the next sucker. How hard is it to save up your deposit? Your 70 odd, probably 100 odd grand you need in Sydney for a deposit on a home when rents keep rising and wages stagnate. We headed through Port Macquarie and Bellingen, places of incredible beauty, but uh, uh, property prices there still seemed out of touch with reality. 
not too different to many suburbs in Melbourne. Then we set up base in Brunswick Heads with Kelvin Daly at the Brunswick Eco Village. A lot of focus there in his Eco Village development on the need for consensus and community insights onto how to build that community. And whilst in Byron, we learnt of 10-month leases. Yes, not only do renters and first home buyers have to put up with 40-year mortgages now allowing prices to be capitalised even higher, but we have Airbnb coming through, disrupting the whole rental market. So the 10th month is up, kick everyone out in time for Christmas, Airbnb it, make a bucket load, and away you go. And uh, I've heard anecdotal stories of, of renters being told, look, put your uh, apartment on Airbnb while you're away. Go on, do it. And of course, they are saying that because if they see their tenants doing that, they can, of course, increase the rents themselves. So uh, the pressures keep building. People are going to have to learn about a fairer taxation system. The other loophole of the week has been hearing from a contact of Catherine Cashmore's that now the Australian Tax Office is allowing self-managed super funds to be able to buy a property and rent it out to their kids that had previously been disallowed who knows at what sort of rental price uh, would be charged there, but 50% of the property's value can be bought by the self-managed super fund. It's not yet clear whether the other 50% could be borrowed and negatively geared. We are trying to track that down. But uh, this is of great concern. Yet again, more handouts for property investors and policy fraud, such as the first home buyer stamp duty discount handed out to the unsuspecting masses. That's why you need to listen to this show. That's why you need to share it with your networks. Uh, over to Mullumbimby, where so many artists have been pushed out of Byron Bay. Seemed like uh, monthly rents were around 2,200, 2,400. That's not much different to the inner ring of Melbourne. Seems like uh, all the way along the East Coast, so many communities are now paying similar prices, whether you live in the city or not. Investors are cherry-picking creative communities and pushing up prices. I was I had to laugh when we got to Nimbin, though, that uh, a local there commented that all the junkies are doing a great job keeping investors away. Nimbin, of course, was the Tuntable Falls community, Absolute idyllic setting there, really tempting uh, to, to live up in that world. Uh, uh, rainforests, bower birds everywhere, just beautiful. And to hear that tun table is so financially secure and set up was, was just uh, an insight into how promising sharing this ground rent can be for an intentional community. We got to Brisbane. And I was struck by just how expensive the caravan park was right next to the freeway under a flight path. And to top things off, we were camped underneath some power lines. So we were out of there very quickly. No one, of course, has a spare driveway anymore. Everyone's jammed into terrace homes. No one's counting up how many empty properties there are in Brisbane. As Cameron Murray drove us around the West End there, a bit of sports commentary. That was quite something to hear just how much the Golden Pentic is delivered for the insiders. We moved to Mackay and, of course, 
this was the centre of an environmental war zone, really, with coal, with coal seam gas. We've got uh, land clearing played a big role in that interview with the Mackay Environment Centre. We also learnt about the North Australian Infrastructure Plan and what that really means. The Gina Reinhardt Plan, we should call it. And uh, there was discussion of the Urana Dam, a dam that's been proposed numerous times and never got up based on the cost-benefit analysis. But for some reason, Malcolm Turnbull has uh, pork-barrelled a couple of his Conservative colleagues and now there's uh, an infrastructure program or two up there to take over from the mining boom with uh, the Urana Dam, which seems to be slated for the coal seam gas developments that, of course, are so thirsty for water. Well, again, the resource game comes through there. And, of course, in Mackay, they also had the useless uh, ring road. Uh, you know, it's a tiny community there. Uh, it seemed like a ghost town in the middle of the city. But, of course, now they need to build a multi-billion dollar ring road around the edge of the city to remove 11 traffic lights. Will it do more good or bad for the Mackay community? Townsville, high in youth unemployment, a lot of vacant homes around there. Cairns, lots of land deals uh, surrounding a failed proposed uh, casino in the north of the city. Friends of mine at a, a community house called the Tea House were forced out of a decade-long uh, community house there because the landowner had bought the three surrounding land titles and was looking forward to that golden pen tick and selling up big time. So there's no way community uh, cohesion can compete with uh, that golden pen tick. What we're talking about is taxing away some of those benefits so that the difference between investor return and our wages, our rents, is not so different. And from Cairns, then we went up to Cape Trib, lots of tourism dollars up there, a very expensive uh, camping, croc territory, getting a little bit worried around there. Um, Mariba at Kanjini with a hope of uh, a CLT. And then we boomed 3,000 kilometres in 10 days across to Darwin via Mataranka Springs, where Gina Reinhardt is 90% uh, of the way through to having coal seam gas fracking approved at these idyllic springs. It was like paradise personified. And here it is, uh, Gina Reinhardt's going to tear it apart for some low-quality gas. So quite something. Now we're in, we've been to Darwin, and uh, interesting to see in CoreLogic's latest uh, report that... Uh, over the last decade, the capital cities closest to doubling in price have been, of course, Sydney, Melbourne and Darwin. And, of course, Darwin has no land tax. And a land tax or a ground rent is, in effect, a counterweight to land price. The more you pay in land tax, the less likely you are to, to borrow from the bank to buy that property outright. So it's a counterweight to mortgage debt, a counterweight to land price, and that revenue flow can be used to give yourself a, a income tax cut. So that's what we keep banging away on about here on The Renegade Economist. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks very much for listening and sharing this with your networks. Fire me a question at earth at earthsharing.org.au and wish us luck as we head west towards Broome. Never been to WA, very excited.